Hello and welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. In this episode, we'll look at the dawn of the Tibetan Empire. When Song Sangampo received the crown of a newly expanded kingdom, he gained control of a relatively small area of the Tibetan plateau. By the time he died, Tibet had expanded to cover the majority of the plateau, conquered its closest neighbors, and had made cultural and religious strides that would change the course of its history. Maps and images can be found on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com or find me on Twitter at the Almost Forgot. This is Season 7, Episode 4, Songston Gampo, and this is the Almost Forgotten. Songsen Gampo, born in the first decade of the 600s AD, was the son of the king of Tibet. This king, Namri Songsen, didn't rule the whole of the Tibetan plateau, or anything close to that. He started his reign as the king of the people of the Yarlung Valley in southeastern Tibet, on the river that eventually flows east around the Himalayas, before turning south and becoming the Brahmaputra. When Songsen Gampo was born at the beginning of the 7th century, the Tibetan plateau was not united. To its north, the gigantic Gokturk Khaganate had splintered, and so a few Turkic Khaganates controlled basically the whole of the Eurasian steppe from eastern Mongolia through to the western shores of the Caspian Sea. To Tibet's south, Northern India's various small kingdoms and republics had been united under the Emperor Harsha. The rest of India remained fragmented, including Kashmir and the Indus Valley, and most of the south, although the Chalukya dynasty in the southwest was on the rise and expanding. Further west, the Sassanid Empire of Iran was at the height of its power under Khusro II and ruled from Bactria and Sogdiana clear through to Mesopotamia and the southern shores of the Persian Gulf. Their lands ended in the west, wherever the Eastern Roman Empire's lands started. In Armenia, Syria, and the Levant, those lands changed hands often, but the Mediterranean shoreline tended to be Byzantine. And starting from wherever that line happened to be, and moving west, the Eastern Roman Byzantine Constantinopolians controlled lands across North Africa, about as far as Algeria, as well as all of Anatolia and the Balkan Peninsula. To Byzantium's south, the Nubian kingdoms of Makuria and Elodia were flourishing, as was the Aksumite Empire of Ethiopia, despite being pushed out of their recent overseas conquest in Yemen by the Sassanid Persians. To the north of Byzantium, the Bulgars held lands north of the Black Sea, and the Avar Khaganate ruled much of the Hungarian plain. Further west was a mishmash of post-Roman kingdoms and tribes. The Lombards held much of Italy, and the Visigoths ruled most of the Iberian Peninsula. The Franks ruled today's France and West Germany, under the Merovingian dynasty, albeit in a somewhat disunited fashion, with the kings not holding much real power. 
And across the English Channel, Albion had experienced the Anglo-Saxon conquest or migration or whatever already. And England was in the Heptarchy period with petty kingdoms like Kent, Mercia, and Wessex. Wales, Scotland, and Ireland were similarly divided into really just like clans and chiefdoms, but I guess we're supposed to call them petty kingdoms because they're British. Even further west across the ocean, it was the Mayan classical period with powerful independent city-states in the Yucatan region. And in Peru, the Mochi culture was well-established in the north and the Nazca culture in the south. Continuing west again across another ocean, Japan was in the Asuka period, a part of the Yamato period marked in part by the arrival of Buddhism. Korea was nearing the end of its Three Kingdoms period. China started the century united for the first time in two centuries by Emperor Wen of Sui, Season 1, Episode 5. China ruled the eastern regions of modern China, but in the west they were limited to lands in the north, just south of the vast steppe, as far as the Taklamakan Desert. To the south of this narrow arm of Chinese control, stretching along the Silk Road toward the west, lay the lands of the Tuyuhun. The Tuyuhun, also known as the Aza, were a group of nomadic tribes, mostly the Zhanbei people, who arrived after the Zhongnu ousted them from Mongolia. They lived just to the north of the Tibetan Plateau. And of course, to their south were the lands, not the kingdom, but the lands of Tibet. Tibet is the region that covers most of the Tibetan Plateau, an area in Central and Eastern Asia that covers nearly a million square miles. Thanks to being home to the world's biggest mountains and being the highest plateau, it averages an elevation of about 15,000 feet, or 4,500 kilometers, give or take. It is also the world's largest source of fresh water outside of the North and South Poles, and is the source of many of the major rivers of Asia, including the Indus, the Gaghara, which is a major tributary of the Ganges, the Brahmaputra, the Mekong, and the Yangtze. The northern border of the region of Tibet is the Kunlun mountain range. On the other side of this, to the north, is the Taklamakan Desert, at least on the western end, which was the last, or first, depending on the direction you were traveling, major hurdle on the overland Silk Road. On the western border of the plateau is the Karakoram Mountains. To the south of the Kunlun lay the Changtang High Plains of northern Tibet. Despite the fact that this isn't mountains but rather plains here, this part of the country is at a very high elevation, really too high for many crops to grow. Even today, most residents here are nomadic pastoralists. Southern Tibet is also high plains, but not quite as high. So it's where most Tibetans live, not counting the lands further east, just on the border of China. And whatever picture you have in your head of the Tibetan capital of Lhasa, which is in the south, and its famous Potala Palace, which seems to sit on top of a mountain, southern Tibet is much more hospitable than the north. Not that Lhasa is a lowland at over 11,000 feet elevation, but in the south, in the valleys, agriculture is not just possible, it can thrive. Lhasa gets into the 80s Fahrenheit in the summer, and while it gets cold in the winter, average daytime highs are in the 40s even in the coldest months, and they don't tend to get much snow. 
So Southern Tibet is not necessarily a land of nomadic pastoralists, although they had those as well. But the region is hospitable enough to agriculture that for centuries, Tibet has been able to provide itself with the crops it's needed to survive. Most people live below 12,000 feet in the narrow valleys in between the large mountains. The valleys themselves are still mostly above about 7,000 feet high, but they offer a nice alternative to the surrounding mountains. Speaking of mountains, of course, to the south of these southern Tibetan valleys, the Himalayas rise up and separate Tibet from India. We don't know much about Tibet prior to the middle of the first millennium AD. It's not that there aren't histories written. The Tibetans had plenty of those, but most are what we'd consider to be really more mythology than actual history. The kings of Tibet prior to Namri Songsten don't have much historical attribution, and it's not clear how much territory they held. It's possible there was a unified kingdom as early as about the 4th century AD, when various chiefs or clan leaders came together and formed something more centralized. When Namri Songsten took the throne, he was part of what is now called the Yarlung Dynasty. He may have been trying to reunite some clans that had once been a bit more unified, or there may never have been much unity. It's not totally clear. But we do know that he managed to consolidate the local clans into something more like a small kingdom. And suddenly, the Yarlung Dynasty controlled a swath of the southern central Tibetan plateau. Still not nearly all of Tibet, but it's a good start. Although the idea of various clans living in, or at least near, Central Asia may give you some thoughts of the Mongols and their predecessors, as well as the Turks of the region, you know, spending their lives on horseback, Tibet was not necessarily like that. They certainly had fierce horse-riding warriors. But with their land on the southern plateau so suitable for agriculture, the Tibetans didn't spend their entire lives on horseback. According to H.E. Richardson in the book Tibet and its history. At this point, Tibet was, quote, not merely a barbaric nomad tribe. By the 7th century, they already had walled towns and small castles surrounded by farmland. They were also skilled workers in metal, making highly serviceable armor and weapons, as well as fine decorative gold mail for ceremonial use and elaborate golden utensils. Such crafts suggest several centuries of development, unquote. Also at this time, the people of the Tibetan Plateau mostly practiced the Bon religion. The Bon religion was animistic and well-established among the people of Tibet. Buddhism had certainly reached Tibet at this point, but it hadn't taken root yet. Songsa Gampo became king probably in the year 618, when Namri Songsten died from poisoning. Songsa Gampo was around 13 years old at the time, and so the newly expanded kingdom quickly dissolved in rebellion. Despite his age, it didn't take long for the new king to quiet the uprising, and his kingdom was once again established as the power in the central southern Tibetan plateau. However, to their northeast, the Sumpa people, who had been, at the very least, close allies, also broke away. Now, the western region of the Tibetan plateau was ruled by the Zhang Zhong, who may well have been more powerful than the Tibetan kingdom at the time. It would be hard to go teach the Sumpa a lesson without opening Tibet up for attacks itself from these powerful western neighbors. So, Songsen Gampo allied with them, getting his sister to marry the Zhang Zhong king. He may have, in turn, married the Zhang Zhong king's sister. 
Probably around this time, having established himself on the throne and having reintroduced stability to Tibet, he was able to, at something like 16 years old, arrange another political marriage for himself. He married a woman named Brikuti, the daughter of the king of Nepal. Nepali records show that the king there had no desire to send his daughter away to marry the Tibetan king. But he felt he had no choice because he feared the Tibetan army marching in and taking her anyway, as well as raising their territories. So at this point, Tibet was already known as a formidable military force by its immediate neighbors. This marriage probably happened in the early 620s AD, although some do date it to about a decade later. Either way, Brikuti became someone legendary in Tibet. She was a devout Buddhist and brought with her, in addition to her faith, some important relics. One of these was a sacred image of the Buddha, but there were others too, and she helped greatly grow the influence of Buddhism in the country. While it had almost certainly been introduced before this time, thanks in part to Brikuti, it is during the range of Songs and Gampo that Tibet was really set on its road to becoming a Buddhist nation. With those two marriages set and a few of his borders now much more secure, he could turn to deal with the Sumpas, which is what he did. There are a few details, but they were soon brought into Tibet's sphere of influence as a tributary state. They were a big source of iron. It seems that was their form of tribute to the empire, and they were a major source of iron work as well. So absorbing them was an important addition to the arsenal, and I mean that literally, not figuratively. This was before the end of the 620s, and at this point, Tibet had become more than a kingdom. It was a burgeoning empire. It's worth noting once again that while the Tibetans might be considered barbarians by the Chinese, this was not some technologically backward society. And while this period brought them sciences and medicine from outside lands, such as China and India and Iranian Central Asia, the ironworking they did, as well as the goldwork, was advanced and impressive. According to Rolf Alfred Stein, in his Tibetan Civilization, quote, the Chinese analysts marveled at the quality of Tibetan equipment. Their armor is excellent. They clothe the entire body in it, except for the eye holes. Even powerful blows and keen blades can do them little harm, they wrote. Or then, they have bows and swords, shields, spears, suits of armor, and helmets. Both men and horses are covered in coats of mail of excellent manufacture, unquote. They were horsemen, but they weren't the traditional steppe archers that lived to their north. For one thing, they were much more heavily armored. And for another, they weren't renowned for their skills with the bow. Instead, their reputation was gained from their swordsmanship. Speaking of their military prowess, it seems silly to have that powerful Zhang Zhong kingdom to their west. Conveniently, although she likely didn't feel that way at the time, the queen of Zhang Zhong and sister of Song Gampo was not treated very well by her husband. So she turned to her brother, and they appear to have come up with a plan. The records aren't exactly clear on what happened. She may have communicated about when her husband was away with some of the army, and that's when Songsten Gampo swooped in with his own army and took the capital city, leaving the Zhang Zhong weakened and fairly easy pickings. Another story has her deliberately leading her husband and the Zhang Zhong army into an ambush, but you kind of wonder how this would actually be possible. Whatever the story, by the middle of the 620s, the Zhang Zhong kingdom was conquered, becoming part of the new Tibetan Empire. 
And while the land certainly sat on the Tibetan plateau, the Tibetans didn't consider it part of their homeland kingdom. It was a separate place. So at that point, they probably were beginning to realize they had created something more than what they had been for the prior centuries. Songsen Gampo then turned his attention north. Sure, the route south was blocked by the highest mountains in the world, but that wasn't the only reason. The Tuyahun Kingdom, who the Tibetans called the Aza, ruled the northern portion of the Tibetan Plateau, as well as the Heshi Quarter, which is the long, narrow strip of land in between the mountains at the edges of the Tibetan and Mongolian plateaus. In other words, it's the pathway that connects the Tarim Basin in the west with the eastern Yellow River Valley. It was the eastern terminus of the Overland Silk Road, so it was kind of important. The Tuyahun were already in decline, and they began to face pressure from the Chinese Tang Dynasty. They actually submitted to China, but still raided some territory, possibly a reflection of China's decline and subsequent lack of centralized control. In 634, the Tang Emperor launched an invasion and began the process of subjugating Tuyahun. This was going to put Tang China uncomfortably close to Tibet, so an embassy was sent to the Chinese capital of Chang'an. Nothing is recorded about what the message specifically said, but we know they showed up there in December of 634. The Chinese sent an embassy back in response, although we aren't sure of the contents of that either. By 635, the Chinese had completed their subjugation of the Tuyahun. According to Christopher I. Beckwith in his book The Tibetan Empire in the Struggle for Central Asia, quote, the campaign covered the length and breadth of Tuyahun territory and brought Chinese armies, and Aza refugees, no doubt, into the Tibetan borderlands. The status of the Aza country as a buffer state, insofar as it had indeed functioned as one, was now effectively destroyed, unquote. This prompted Samsten Gongpo to reply to the Chinese with an offer of marriage. That is to say, he was offering to marry a Chinese princess. Despite some of his neighbors being able to accomplish this state-building feat, he was rejected. In fact, the Tuyahun king had been given a Chinese princess as a wife, while Tibet was denied one. This appears to have offended Songsten Gampo enough that it is now considered what brought on the subsequent war. He launched an offensive, first not against the Chinese, but against other neighboring tribes, presumably to build up his own territory and resources. In the late 630s, Songsen Gampo attacked and conquered Tuyahun lands, which were under Chinese suzerainty at the time. They also went after the Tangut tribe, who had been Chinese subjects, and then rebelled, as well as the Polan tribe. Tibet conquered them, which filled in the border between Tibetan lands and Tuyahun. Then, in September of 638, the Tibetans attacked Chinese lands along the border. They raided Songzhou, in today's Sichuan province and they soon defeated an army sent to punish them. This army, according to chroniclers on both sides, was huge, although neither side seems to have made realistic estimates of the numbers involved. Songsten Gampo also got other tribes in the area to change allegiances from their Chinese masters to Tibet instead. But after a week or so, the Chinese were able to ambush a loitering Tibetan force. Some chroniclers indicate this wasn't a major battle, but it at least allowed the Chinese to claim that everything was even now, and so they could save face and come to the negotiating table. 
Others claim it was a pretty big victory and it forced Songston Gompel to withdraw. He apologized for his actions, although none of this seems to me to be a clear indicator of what really happened in the battle. The Tibetans may well have just outstretched their supply lines and decided it was time to back out of the region. Or maybe they got their butts handed to them. The apology doesn't actually give us a good idea of the outcome of the battle. He was the one who invaded, and apology may have been standard part of negotiations for that. The implications of the campaign, though, are much clearer. Tibet had demonstrated it was now a significant power, and China was finally willing to send a princess to Songsen Gampo for marriage. So in 640, Tibetan minister Gar Tongsten Yulsung showed up in China at the head of an embassy. Gar Tongsten was a nobleman and the leading advisor to Songsten Gampo. He brought with him massive amounts of gifts to the Tang Emperor. He spent a year in Chang'an, the capital, before returning to Lhasa, escorting Princess Wenchang, soon to be the Tibetan Emperor's new wife. This spelled the end of any conflict for China and Tibet in Songsten Gampo's lifetime. If you're counting, this is now the third wife I've mentioned, and he certainly had a few more. Of course, this being the 7th century AD, nobody seems to have had a problem with the multiple wives thing, at least for a king. And it seems, neither did the wives. Wencheng, like Brikuti, was a devout Buddhist. She, too, brought a holy image of the Buddha. According to Sepon Shakabha in his book, Tibet, A Political History, quote, since this image is also said to have been blessed by the Lord Buddha himself, the Tibetans considered it very sacred. Both the Nepalese princess and the Chinese princess wished to build temples for the images of the Buddha they had brought to Tibet, unquote. Together, the foreign wives built the Jokang Temple, which is considered the most sacred temple, not just in all of Lhasa, but in all of Tibet. It wasn't an immediate change, but thanks to the influence of these two queens and the subsequent conversion of the king, Buddhism eventually took over the plateau, replacing the animistic Bon religion. Now, this certainly doesn't tell the whole story. For many years, the Tibetan royals were Buddhists, while many of the people retained the Bon religion until being forced to do otherwise. And as is typical in these circumstances, many of the Bon traditions were absorbed into the Tibetan interpretation of Buddhism, giving Tibetan Buddhism its distinctive character, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica. And of course, eventually Lhasa became the center of Buddhist thought, not just in the region, but really in all of East Asia. Besides getting credit for the main introduction of Buddhism throughout Tibet, although clearly his wives deserve most of the credit, Songsen Gampo also gets credit for the introduction of the Tibetan script. And maybe the ladies get some credit for that too, because part of the impetus for this was translating some sacred Buddhist texts that Tibet had received from India and still held. Anyway, the king sent a group of scholars to India to study the script there. Legend has it that most didn't survive, or at least didn't return, but one came back. That one, a minister in the Tibetan government, was named Thonmi Sambota. When he returned, he developed a script based on what is known as the Gupta, or Late Brahmi script. These were the letters used in the Kashmir region of northern India, and since the Tibetan script is still in use today, you can see that it certainly has an Indic appearance. Thonmi Sambota returned with the alphabet in tow and adapted it to the Tibetan language, adding a few more letters for some additional consonants they have. 
While some have somewhat doubtfully marveled at the veracity of a script being developed and incorporated so quickly, this isn't entirely different from the development of Cyrillic script just two and a half centuries later, so it's more than plausible. Of course, besides all the Buddhism and educational advances, Songsen Gampo continued to expand his territory. There were only two real routes into India from Tibet, through Kashmir and through Nepal. But the big northern Indian empire didn't extend to Kashmir, which meant to get there, you're going through Nepal. In the 640s, Tibet expanded into Nepal, defeating the ruling Lichavi dynasty there. This is, of course, despite close enough relations with them that Brikuti was sent over to marry the Tibetan emperor. But this conquest was probably a bit different than their others, and might not have involved a massive army marching in, as their king had originally feared. Instead, after the death of the king, the throne was contested in Nepal. The rival to the new king who got crowned asked for help from Tibet. Songsten Gampo provided that help and killed the new king. That's really kind of all we know. It might have been an assassination, or it might have been an army that went after his stronghold. We just have no idea. What we know is the Tibetans placed the rival on the Nepali throne, and as a result, Nepal became a vassal kingdom to Tibet for centuries, effectively pulling it into the Tibetan Empire. Late in the 640s, Tibet also sent an army into India, although it wasn't really to conquer it. Rather, the Chinese ambassador had been sent on an embassy to Harsha, the ruler of an empire that stretched across much of northern India. However, Harsha had died before the ambassador arrived, and when he got there, most of the Chinese embassy was killed by the new king. The Chinese emperor, it seemed, appealed to his friend Songsten Gampo to help retaliate. It's recorded that nearly 20,000 soldiers, a mix of Tibetan and Nepalese, were dispatched. They entered India to the south of Nepal and fought a battle with the Indians. They were victorious, and at least the Chinese stories say they captured this new king and sent him off to China to face the music. Author Tsepan Shakabpa points out that there are no Indian records to corroborate this. But while the incursion into India is interesting, what this episode highlights is the relationship between Tibet and China at the time. Although they weren't always close allies during this period, their cordial relationship allowed these powerful neighbors to act on mostly friendly terms with each other. This may be because of their own internal consolidations taking precedence. The new Tang dynasty in China was busy pacifying their territorial gains from the eastern Turks in the northern bend of the Yellow River Valley. And the Tibetans were doing the same, as Songsten Gampo worked to finish the incorporation of the Zhangzhou kingdom into his empire. Although we don't know when, chronologically, he did it, the Tibetan emperor was also a lawgiver for his people. Perhaps because of the Buddhist influence, Songsten Gampo worked to codify the law, perhaps even introduce laws, for this relatively new state. It may actually have been early in his reign, Either way, he introduced a set of laws and moral codes that resonated with the Tibetan people for centuries. Richardson writes, quote, The Tibetans are still proud to look back to the 7th century king Songsen Gampo as the author of their law. His code consists, in fact, of 16 general moral principles, unquote. Now, I'm not going to go through all 16, but they varied from something close to actual law to things that were more like moral guides. 
sort of like the Ten Commandments. Here's a taste of a few. Establish good manners. Find those who quarrel. Compensate for murder. Make thieves pay ninefold the amount of the stolen property. Banish the one who commits rape to another country and cut off one of his limbs. Believe in karma. Forsake everything that is irreligious. Help your neighbor. As you can see, it's a bit of a mixed bag. Some are quite prescriptive about rules and punishment. Others are, not so much, more like guidelines than actual rules. In addition to bringing laws and religion, he built a palace in Lhasa. While it doesn't survive, the well-known Pallada Palace, built in the 17th century, stands on this site. Songsen Gampo died in 649 and was succeeded by his son, Garl Tongsen Yulsung, his trusted advisor, who had gone on that embassy to China, was appointed as regent for the young king. Peace with China, though, did not last beyond Songsen Gampo's life. Conflict began soon after his death. Gar Tongsen Yulsung was a much-admired leader, at least by the Chinese, who wrote about his abilities in their histories, as he continued Tibet's entrance onto the world stage. As regent, he led them to another, more final victory over the Tuyahun, who were Chinese vassals at the time, expanding the Tibetan Empire further north. Over the next century, the Tibetan Empire continued to establish itself as the power in what we might anachronistically call Western China. The Tang Dynasty itself was in turmoil in the middle of the 8th century and suffered through a decade-long rebellion. During this rebellion, Tibet made gains into Chinese territory, and in the year 763, they actually occupied the Tang capital of Chang'an. By the 800s AD, they even controlled, or at least exerted influence in, Bengal, India. Unfortunately for Tibet, in the middle of the 9th century, a civil war broke out after the emperor's death that resulted in a major fragmentation of the empire. Like it's literally called the era of fragmentation. It lasted for over four centuries, until after the Mongol conquest of the region. But for two centuries, starting with Songsten Gampo, Tibet basically ruled the whole of the Tibetan plateau. Bell put it like this, quote, As a conqueror, a lawgiver, and a religious and educational reformer, Songsten Gampo has established an undying name in Tibetan annals, unquote. Not only did he help make Buddhism the state religion, he also greatly expanded the kingdom. It became an empire, and he even conquered Nepal, as well as parts of western China and upper Burma. But his lasting legacy wasn't the ephemeral territory on the edge of a plateau. Instead, this young king united the plateau, first conquering or otherwise absorbing other kingdoms there, including the powerful Zhangzhou kingdom. Songsten Gampo, in some ways, created Tibet as we know it today. Next episode, we're going to travel forward about a century to Europe and the Mediterranean, and a king that pulled together a people that for centuries just couldn't seem to be united, at least for a short time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>